Welcome to Short Stack Stories. I'm Jackie. And I'm Liv. We hope you enjoyed listening to the brilliant Elif Bottomin on our last episode as much as we enjoyed speaking with her about her work. This week, we are back on the short stack track with a hilarious short story about the trials and tribulations of young love. The Names We Give by Nancy Kissam introduces us to Charlie, a normal young man who gets nervous when he has a crush just like the rest of us, except he deals with a little bit more than just butterflies in his stomach. Liv and I have really loved bringing collaborators into our short stack voice cast, and this week, for the names we give, we are thrilled to have the singularly talented Connor Bruley as your narrator. So settle in for some sweet romance. But beware those love bugs while you enjoy this week's short stack story. The Names We Give by Nancy Kissam Read by Connor Bruley Charlie wasn't sick. He didn't live in a bubble or anything like that. But still. It started when he was at school talking to Becky Jensen. Becky wore ponytails with red ribbons or blue ribbons or green, depending on the day of the week. It was Thursday, so it was red. They were trading stories about camping. Charlie's parents believed in tents while Becky's parents owned an RV. Charlie good-naturedly suggested that RV camping wasn't real. It was like parking an apartment on a campground. What was the fun in that? Becky took no offense, although she did mention that no one had to poo outside the RV, whereas tent camping made pooing a challenge. Charlie appreciated Becky's candid view on the subject and seceded her that point. Then it happened without warning. Charlie puked up a frog, a live frog. He never recalled eating a frog, nor would he ever consider it. Becky heaved while stumbling into a group of girlfriends at another table where they proceeded to stare at Charlie with sour expressions. Charlie drooled out an apology. Evidently, barfing up a frog really worked the salivary glands. Charlie then went after the frog before it wreaked havoc on his classmates, but it was too fast and it jumped out an open window before Charlie could capture it. Years went by where Charlie thought maybe this was an isolated incident. Maybe he dreamt it. It was a childhood hallucination. After all, he never saw the frog again after that. There was no proof other than his own vague memory. Then it happened again. Charlie was on a coffee date with Taylor, a biophysics major who wore patchouli and read the Talmud. They laughed together, recalling an episode of a sitcom they both liked, and again, without a hint, Charlie puked up a tortoise. A live leopard tortoise he would soon discover after some research. Taylor screamed with horror, knocking over her latte while running for the door. Charlie was also horrified, but he thought later that she could have been a bit less startled being a biophysics major and all. Since the tortoise was slower than the frog, he was able to pick it up, but then was asked to leave the establishment as pets weren't allowed inside. Charlie didn't know where to turn. Should he call a doctor? Go to the hospital? It's not like he felt ill or had any side effects from barfing up these creatures. In fact, he felt like the picture of health. 
He had never been stricken with anything more than a head cold his entire 19-year-old life, and he attributed that to his hay fever. Lastly, how would one explain such a thing? Charlie picked up the phone to call his mother. She must have some idea as to why this was happening. The phone rang twice before he heard his mother's voice say, Hello? And like a child, Charlie started to cry, which surprised him because he was holding it together pretty good up until then. As if Charlie's mother had been bracing for this call his whole life, she said, Oh dear, it's happened again, hasn't it? She recalled a time when Charlie was just an infant. He loved to be held by his godmother, whose name was Teresa. Teresa was his mother's best friend. They met in second grade when Charlie's mother had the chicken box and Teresa was asked by their teacher to escort her to the nurse's office after the beginnings of a fever were making her hallucinate. She claimed to have seen bunnies dancing in the school hallway. Days later, Teresa's body was covered with itchy blisters and she had a fever of 103, but Teresa never once blamed Charlie's mother. To her, the friendship was worth every drop of calamine lotion applied to her sore, pimpled body. However, their friendship was truly tested when one day, while Teresa was holding Charlie, he threw up a goldfish. Charlie hadn't even begun eating whole foods yet. Teresa was shocked, gave Charlie back to his mother, and the two never spoke again. It broke his mother's heart, but things happened with babies. One had to be open to the unexpected, even if spitting up a goldfish was highly unusual. She lost her best friend, but she made a home for the goldfish in a flower vase and named him Henry. He lived for another two years. Charlie's mother had no remedy or explanation for Charlie's condition. She suggested he keep 911 on speed dial just in case one of the creatures proved too unwieldy to puke up. The last thing you wanted was to choke on a stubborn salamander during an important interview, or worse, a date. That was it! Charlie realized the connection. When he barfed up the goldfish, the frog, the leopard tortoise, it was all in front of women with whom he had crushes. This discovery both relieved and destroyed Charlie. Did this mean he was to be alone for the rest of his life? He would have to start hobbies, go to the movies alone, perhaps pick up gardening. But a married life would never exist for him. He would die alone. Years passed and Charlie had a fairly fulfilling life. He got a PhD in philosophy, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, made soups and learned Mandarin. He and the leopard tortoise, who he had since named Patches, lived in a modest house outside of town. Charlie made certain never to interact for very long with most people. Who knew when a crush could flare up? However, one day Patches was not acting like his chipper self. He left an entire stalk of romaine lettuce neglected in his bowl. Not even a mustard green could rouse him. Desperate, Charlie got on the phone and called the local veterinarian. Since Patches was a good 80 pounds by this point, a house call was necessary. The receptionist told Charlie that Dr. Lewis would be there at 6 p.m. after the office closed for the day. Since the situation didn't appear dire, Charlie agreed to the evening appointment. But as the hours went by, his worry grew. Not only wasn't Patches eating, but he also seemed depressed. 
Sure, he was a tortoise, but there's a difference between slow and sad. Any sloth can tell you that. The doorbell rang at 6 p.m. on the dot, and when Charlie answered the door, he immediately felt a tightness in his throat. Dr. Lewis wore a lab coat and carried a large black case. After she set it down, she gave her honey blonde hair a fling behind her shoulder. Charlie almost passed out from restraint. He swallowed hard. Thank you so much for coming on such short notice. There was a soft stone in his throat the size of a tennis ball. He thought if he didn't release it, he'd surely choke and die. No problem, said Dr. Lewis. I live not far from here. It's on my way home. Where's the patient? Charlie led Dr. Lewis out to the garden at the back of the house. Although she wore heels, she skillfully maneuvered her way around the wildflowers and spiky succulents. Hey, little guy, she said as she greeted Patches, who was sleeping on a mossy bed under a palm frond. I heard you weren't feeling so good. Then she knelt down before him on bare knees where Patches laid his head. Charlie was compelled to look away and slightly gag, but a forceful swallow held down whatever new critter begged for release. Dr. Lewis took out a stethoscope and listened to Patch's heart. She felt for tumors around the soft bits of his body beneath his shell. She looked into his eyes with a small flashlight. She even opened his mouth and stuck her hand in, feeling for polyps and cankers. Nothing. But she'd take home some blood and return in a couple days, especially if Patches didn't show some improvement. Charlie held on to the doorframe, leading out to the garden, as if he were on a rolling ship. The thought of Dr. Lewis returning made him lightheaded and swallowing impossible. He felt the life inside his throat rotating like a fetus until Dr. Lewis removed a surgical glove to reveal an engagement ring. A simple white gold band with a small diamond in its middle. Even though Charlie had met Dr. Lewis, he felt that the ring didn't suit her. He imagined something more unconventional, like an emerald, to match her eyes. Nonetheless, this was just the thing to unclog Charlie's throat. For if nothing else, he believed in loyalty. Dr. Lewis arrived at 6 p.m. the following Wednesday, then again on Friday, and again on Sunday, even though it was her day off. Charlie didn't argue because, truth be told, he rather enjoyed the company. Other than the occasional visit from his parents, he was alone. All the time. He had become so accustomed to a solitary life that anything else was foreign. When Dr. Lewis would arrive, she and Charlie would exchange pleasantries. The weather sure is hot. Is that a new rug? I understand that artichokes are in season. Things like that. Then Dr. Lewis would end the conversations abruptly and head out to the garden. Whenever Patches saw Dr. Lewis approach, his head would lift and he'd smile as much as a tortoise could. She'd scratch his neck like he were a dog and his eyes would close in the pleasure of it. She hand-fed him carrots or zucchini, which he accepted without hesitation. But he'd often return to complacency when Dr. Lewis took her leave. He's just a moody fella, Dr. Lewis would say. However, it hurt Charlie's feelings. After all, it was Charlie who usually fed Patches. He was the one who cleaned up his poop. He was the one who puked him up those many years ago, but he couldn't rightly share that with Dr. Lewis. Charlie thought Dr. Lewis was finally crossing a line when she requested Charlie stay in the house during her visits with Patches. 
She told Charlie that Patches wasn't comfortable having him there during examinations. How would she know? Did she speak tortoise? Could she read Patches' mind? Did they share a secret language? Life was easier when he was alone. It was just him and Patches. No complications, no hurt feelings, no worrying if he would lose the love of his tortoise. She had no right to make such demands, even though the demands sounded more like pleasant requests. On the next visit, Charlie would confront Dr. Lewis. After all, he felt nothing for her except maybe gratitude for helping Patches. If he'd only contacted another veterinarian, the results would have been the same. Patches would have recovered somehow. How? He didn't know, but somehow. It had nothing to do with Dr. Lewis's soft voice, her gentle touch, her honeyed color hair that left loose strands on the shoulders of her white lab coat. It wasn't the way she looked into your eyes like you were the only person in the room, which is silly because he was the only person in the room. And it wasn't the way she smiled with slightly uneven teeth, those soft lips. Suddenly, Charlie barfed up a gecko. He put it in a tank and named him Lance. Six o'clock came, but there was no knock at the door. The next day, it was the same. He called her office, but after the receptionist put him on hold, she told him that Dr. Lewis was busy. The next day, out to lunch. The next day, out sick. Perhaps his resentment wasn't such a secret. Dr. Lewis knew he was jealous. She was no fool. What had he done? She was only trying to help Patches. Charlie didn't need to get so emotional about it. Now she was gone. Forever. With each passing day and no visits from Dr. Lewis, Patches started to become lethargic again. He listlessly nibbled at some red leaf lettuce, but not enough to sustain him. His water bowl sat unlicked, attracting mosquitoes. Two weeks went by. It rained for five of those days. And on the sixth day, the sun began to peek out of the clouds with promise. Patches, however, would barely lift his head. That's it, Charlie thought. I'm calling another doctor. Just as he picked up the phone, there was a knock at the door. When Charlie opened it, he couldn't help but think she looked more beautiful than ever, even though she was crying. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? I broke it off with my fiance. I had to. How's Patches? Her sincerity and sadness made her all the more stunning that Charlie ran from the room and heaved into the guest bathtub two pufferfish, a seahorse, and three Garibaldi. He started the bathwater, for whom he would later name Hank, Gloria, Josephine, Mike, Fran, and Cecil. How could he possibly return to her? She was standing there in his enclosed porch, waiting for him. Her pearl skin illuminated by the mid-morning light, her chest heaving with sobs. Oh, how the silver heart necklace she wore snuggled in between her breasts. How he wanted to be that necklace, but he could barely rise from the bathroom rug after hurling from his body the largest collection of sea life to date. He would have to tell her the truth and send her on her way, back into the arms of her fiancé, whose name was probably Drake, or Chad, or Felipe. When he staggered back out, Dr. Lewis stood bent from the waist. Her armpits were green with sweat, the ends of her hair dripped with what Charlie could only describe as goo, and her lips were smeared with a white foam. Next to her, 
a wet baby panda rolled around on the floor. They named her Penelope, after her mother. I could listen to Connor tell stories all day. Every day. <laughs> Connor, you want to host? We could just wrap up here and you could just take over. <laughs> yep, sounds good. No, but I also, this story is so funny. And, I, and yes. unexpected. I was laughing out loud when I first found this story. I was like, we have to do it. It's so funny. I know you, I remember you texting me being like, Jackie, you need to read this story. It's so great. And Honestly, even just reading through Nancy's responses, I, I'm like, she seems like a person that I would get along with very well. Absolutely. I love her humor. I love her writing style. I think it's so unexpected and, and fun. And candid. But also yeah. relatable. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> this feeling of being nervous and fluttery and... Exactly like the butterflies that we get when we first meet a new crush or something like what that. What better way to, you know, explain that than to be up chucking reptiles? <laughs> Making it reality. It's, it seems ridiculous, but let's let's be real here. That it's can be pretty gut wrenching when it comes to love and crushes and all of that. And then like free new pets, love pets. <laughs> I love that. I love the, you know advocacy for adopting animals and taking care of them on top of everything else (laughs) and then the names they give to each of Mm -hmm. the animals (laughs) well speaking of nancy shall we uh get to know a little bit more yeah let's do it great so nancy kissam is a los angeles based writer originally from new york who has published various forms of work, including plays, screenplays, nonfiction essays, and short stories. Nancy started writing in a high school journalism class and got hooked for life while writing a review for the iconic camp classic, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Nancy cites David Sedaris, Dorothy Allison, and Mary Carr as writers that influence her work, as well as the playwrights Tracy Letts and Edward Albee. The Names We Give was particularly inspired by the fanciful writing style of a peer Nancy met at a writing workshop in Idlewild, California. In a departure from her previous work, she felt inspired to write a story about a young man who upchucked reptiles or amphibians every time he got a crush. Currently, Nancy is writing a young adult novel called Sinister Royal about a nine-year-old boy who aspires to become a villain after the death of his mother. Nancy describes the novel as a dark comedy that epitomizes the humor and sincerity she hopes to be remembered for as an author. She promises children won't want to become villains after reading it, or maybe they will. We don't know your kid, so really it's up to you, so read the book first. And finally, Nancy's favorite breakfast is a toasted poppy seed bagel with cream cheese and scrambled eggs with salt, pepper, and lemon juice. Yum. Yum. Sounds really good. (laughs) That sounds amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening today. We love our listeners and we love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at shortstackstoriespod. And you can find this week's author, Nancy Kissam, as Nancy Pants on Facebook. 
If you'd like to have your short story featured on our podcast, contact us on our website, shortstackstories.com, where you can also find our story archive. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest reader, Connor Bruley, for lending his voice to this episode. Connor is a stage, film, and voiceover actor, and he's also founded the mobile self-tape business called Audition Dash. You can find Connor and Audition Dash on Instagram, at con underscore brew, and at Audition Dash. Next week, our short stack story stays on the love train, featuring a tender love story to celebrate the end of Pride Month. Thank you for listening, and as always, have a story-stacked week. Short Stack Stories is produced and edited by Jackie Meisner and Liv Vordenberg. This week's story was sound designed by Liv. Our cover art is by Andrew Harley, our script editor is Joe Rowe, and our theme song is by Messino, whose music is available on Apple Music and everywhere else you stream music. I just puked a goldfish. What about you? I just puked a toad. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs men when I can just puke up pets myself? Yep. Never be lonely.